I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to lie to myself. I'm not going to lie to my child. I have a professional and ethical responsibility to speak up for vulnerable populations, which are children. Also, it sets a it sets a cultural precedent that is so Orwellian. Yeah, exactly. I'm not going there. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to obey. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Medicine Stories podcast, where we are remembering what it is to be human upon the earth. I love that tagline so much ever since it first dropped into my brain because it really encompasses the wide variety of topics that catch my interest and the golden threads that I follow that end up getting discussed on this show. And thank you so much for being here with me through what can feel like really meandering lists of topics, but really all come down to remembering what it is to be human upon the earth. I'm Amber Magnolia Hill, and today I'm sharing my interview with Tava Johnstone. And we'll go ahead and read, I'm going to read her whole bio because it's all important. Tava Johnstone is a licensed clinical social worker, therapist, parent educator, and consultant. She specializes in autism parent training with a main focus of her work, helping parents of gender-questioning youth. Tava approaches her work from a developmental biopsychosocial lens that centers family connection. Tava held numerous appointed positions with the National Association of Social Workers in the Service of Children and Youth, including the Committee for Children, Youth, and Young Adults, where she was invited to write positions for Social Work Speaks and update the Code of Ethics and served as an advisor to leadership on keeping NASW, National Association of Social Workers, legitimate for millennials. Tava is a proud unschooling mom who offers a workshop for parents interested in modern homeschool and unschool. She is passionate about raising spirited and creative kids with a healthy sense of self and believes out-of-classroom learning can be a wonderful way to do that. Tava was born and raised in a progressive, interracial, mixed-class Southern California family. She is a lover of free speech and personal liberty. Tava is registered independent and politically homeless after being a lefty all her life. She is critical of the authoritarian methods used by modern-day, quote, social justice culture, which is not true social justice at all. You may have heard my previous episode on cancel culture to know that I am pretty much aligned with Tava and all of this. Tava views today's left as betraying regular working-class families with academic elitist theories and coercive policy. Tava has been a guest speaker on numerous autism and neurodiversity panels for professionals and parents. She spoke on a gender dysphoria panel with experts in the field of adolescent gender dysphoria, hosted by the Foundation Against Racism and Intolerance. Tava has been a guest on many podcasts where she discusses autism, parenting, gender, and social justice culture. So we just moved into a new house, and this was the first interview I've done for the podcast since we got here, and our Starlink internet isn't awesome, apparently. I mean, it's been fine since we got here, but this call froze four times while Tava was speaking, so I am so sorry. Luckily, they were pretty short. You know, you're, you you did miss a few words or sentences, but you'll be able to tell what she was saying. And yeah, hopefully I can figure that out going forward because 
I feel just awful inviting people on and sharing them with my audience and then having some of their message lost to the ether. What's up, Elon? You know, but it's definitely our best option with rural country living. So thank y'all so much. I hope you have or had some beautiful, relaxing holidays and a happy new year. All right. Welcome, Teva. I'm very happy to finally have you here. Thank you. I'm happy to be here, Amber. I found you on Instagram, I don't know, at some point, maybe a year ago, and immediately knew that I wanted to talk to you. I have appreciated so much of what you share. So you're a neurocurious therapist on Instagram. Can you tell us, you know, both what that name means and about your background? Sure. So I started the Instagram account at Neurocurious Therapist to do autism advocacy because autism is a neurodevelopmental disorder or disability. I took the neuro part, which means brain. And then I just added curious because as a therapist, we try to stay open and curious. It's like a common sort of thing that we say, like, I'm curious about. (laughs) And then I just stuck on therapist and there it was neurocurious therapist. I am a licensed clinical social worker in the state of California. And licensed clinical social workers can do all kinds of things, but I have been a therapist for about eight years, including my graduate school program. And I do a handful of things now, like consulting and educating in a private community. I do a lot of advocacy and I do writing and I'm all over the place. Mm -hmm. So I was attracted to your work because my daughter who's six is she's just definitely neurodivergent and not like extremely, but she's super sensitive. She's highly sensitive. Mm-hmm. And parenting her is very different than parenting my 16-year-old daughter. And my my little one, I'm, I'm the same way. My sister, my father, my grandfather, I, I recognize the, the patterns in her that make her more sensitive to the world. And I'm I'm very curious about this spectrum, you know, like I see the things that help children with an autism diagnosis really help my child as well. Mm -hmm. And I see people arguing online, you know, over like where the line is and some people really want to own their diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And then there's this idea of diagnostic agnosticism and people who don't really care to have a diagnosis, but they just know they perceive the world differently. I'm just so curious what your thoughts on all those borders or lack of borders. Yeah. Okay. Let's start with the diagnostic agnosticism, which I think that's a brilliant phrase. I'm just hearing it for the first time. And I think with adults, there's some room for flexibility as far as like, do you want to get a diagnosis? Do you just want to understand that you move through this world differently and you take in the world differently and kind of make your own accommodations and your own plan for how to make life a little bit easier considering your differences as an adult? With children, there are more considerations with whether or not we should get a diagnosis for them. So I I obviously can't give medical advice on a podcast, but when children receive a diagnosis that is legitimate, that really captures what is happening, they are afforded services and accommodations within the schools and within 
therapy. Like their insurance will cover the therapy. The schools will give them more wiggle room to be able to thrive at school. The schools will give them therapies and aids and and make accommodations for their disability or their, their diagnosis. So in the absence of a diagnosis, the child might not receive the therapies and supports that help them thrive. Also, children know that they're different. And some children do well having like a name for that difference, particularly when they reach like the teenage years. What I've heard from some autistic adults is that getting that label of this is why I'm different. This is why life has been so hard. This is why I I have maybe strengths in these areas, but really have a hard time in these other areas. And having that diagnosis kind of opens up a door for self-acceptance and also community. It can also hinder people, including children, if they like over-identify with the diagnosis. There's a risk of like learned helplessness, you know, where they say, I can't do this because of this diagnosis and I'm not going to try. And there are some extremes online where it's considered like ableist to teach a child to overcome certain things about their disability or their disorder. So there's a lot of arguing about that kind of thing. I come from the from the mindset that it's actually like soft bigotry to not teach children the things that they need to know to live a, a contented, satisfying life, you know, to the best of their ability. Of course, understanding that they have these differences, but we still need to try to teach them. And then as far as like, where's the line between autism and like high sensitivity or just general neurodivergence. That's a tricky one that I see people arguing about too. And I don't usually wade into those arguments because I'm like, I don't know, can we use our energy a little bit better? So the concept of neurodivergence, it's really this umbrella term that captures the different ways people's cognitive functioning diverges, differs from what we consider typically developing. And typically developing is going to be a broad range of, you know, what we consider, I'm putting in air quotes here, normal, normal development where, you know, children are meeting milestones within a range of time. Children are able to have certain skills within a certain range of time. They don't have a learning disability or a mental illness. They're typically developing. So neurodivergence essentially means that the the child or the adult does not fall into that range, that majority range of cognitive functioning. So autism, learning disabilities, mental illness, I would argue that, you know, people who are highly sensitive, there is some research that they do have some different wiring. Um, their nervous systems might be a little bit different. I just, it's not an area that I've taken the deep dive into to decide for myself whether or not I think it should be included under the neurodivergent umbrella. 
It doesn't seem like there's any hard and fast answers there either. That's not remain a gray area. Yeah. You know, it's a made up word. It's a, it's a newer term that came out of a, like a kind of a social justice, kind of a disability rights movement. And there are not hard and fast definitions for, for these kinds of socially constructed ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're very yeah. much working in an area that's, there's a lot of socially constructed ideas, but there's also biological reality underpinning everything. So it's true. It's true. Okay. So one thing you have really helped me with, with my daughter is tools and you have like your Amazon list of, of tools that help neurodivergent kids. And like, you have that, uh, the flying turtle, this mm-hmm. little thing that kids sit on. I do remember these from when I was younger and they have handlebars and you just move the handlebars left and right, left and right. And it goes forward. And I saw you had posted about it, but we lived in a very small house. She wouldn't have gone anywhere. On that <laughs> um, but when we moved into this house, I bought it right away so that she had oh, it on day yay. one and she loves that thing. And it helps her so much. This idea of rhythm mm-hmm. and like the back and forth has been totally revolutionary for us. Another story, um, we had gone to visit my grandma who just turned 101, but she was 100. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That's lovely. That's amazing. It is amazing. And my six-year-old was just like having a meltdown and there there was soup to eat. And I knew she just needed to eat the soup, but she didn't want to eat the soup, you know? And so I had just read you talking about this. And so I took her into my grandma's room. I laid her on her back on the bed and I held her feet, her ankles in my hand and rocked her legs back and forth. I remember doing this in a yoga class when I was like 20 with a partner. And I remember how good it felt. And I did that. And I just started singing, row, row, row your boat. And we ended up doing it for like 15 minutes, which was tiring. But that's how long it took her to to shift her state. And, you know, she slowly started smiling and then laughing and then singing along with me. And then she was like, okay, I'm hungry. Let's go eat soup. And I have used that row, row, row your boat legs rocking a dozen times since then. And it's been so helpful. So thank you for that. Oh, that's awesome. I love hearing these stories. Thank you for sharing. I'm so glad it worked. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. Like what other, you know, we can go deeper into rhythm, but what else do you see being super helpful for parents to do for their neurodivergent kids when they're sort of spinning out? Mm -hmm. What you did with your daughter was you co-regulated her with the use of movement and rhythmic sound in the song and also your your presence your energy as her loving mother who i'm sure she has a great attachment with so all these things you use to co-regulate her and that's what i usually recommend for parents is to really learn how to do that because it's 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 not as easy as it sounds. You have to really put, you're really digging deep sometimes and you're really putting in a significant amount of of your energy in a very intentional way. And you're needing to be really attuned with your child to kind of bring them back down from that dysregulated state. Or sometimes we need to upregulate them as well, but that's kind of a different conversation. But so I recommend parents really learning what, what tends to work for their child to bring them back to a state of equilibrium. And for neurodivergent kids who might be autistic 
or spirited, highly sensitive, if I'm going to put that under the umbrella, they tend to need a lot of movement. And all I'm reluctant to say all kids, but most kids really respond to rhythmic movements, even kids with like developmental trauma, because it's one of the most basic things that a mother does with her child from, from the time the child's in the womb. That child is being rocked and soothed with the mom's rhythm when the mom moves and speaks. And so it's just really um, tapping into that innate mother-child dyad. And it's using movement and our relationship, our safe and trusting relationship to bring them to that state of being able to learn or eat or concentrate or focus. Yeah. Yeah. What I think about all the time is giving her these tools now before she's an adult and she's out on her own and she has no idea how to regulate. Yeah. These tools are so important because they help our children learn to tolerate difficult situations and not in a way where you're accepting abuse. Some people go go to that extreme and they automatically think that like, if you teach coping skills, you're teaching kids to accept um, maltreatment. And that is not what I'm talking about at all. Mm-hmm. But you're teaching ki- kids to push through difficult situations. To, and this, this will help them achieve their goals. Because we know that like anything worth anything is hard. Even, you know, pregnancy and birth and reaching your career goals and being the entrepreneur that you want to be, being the partner that you want to be, like all of these things take work and and perseverance and learning how to stay with the discomfort. And so when we teach our kids these coping skills, they can tap into that to achieve their goals and live the life that they want to live. So, yeah. What else, what other tools can we put in the toolkit of parents raising these kids? It's really important for parents to look at the physical environment of their home. We'll start with the home. For these kids who are neurodivergent, I work with a lot of families impacted by autism with autistic children. So there is a common thread of sensory processing differences also known as sensory processing disorder, where these children are quite thrown off, to use plain language, they're quite thrown off by a sensory environment that is not right for them. So there might be a ton of like visual clutter that's kind of agitating to their um, visual processing system. There might be a lack of sensory input, meaning that the kids need something more. So they need something squishy, something tactile. They need slime. They need something to jump on for that that input. That's proprioceptive, I think, input and uh, vestibular input. So like I recommend really altering the home environment the best that you can that supports the joy and regulation of your child. 
So in my home, I always have a mini trampoline. I always have various things um, where we can rock and even spin. Of course, I have all these in my Amazon store, but you know, we need the things that our kids require to have to be in that state, that state of equilibrium. And so we have to figure out their sensory profile which can be done with careful observation or an occupational therapy assessment. Aside from the sensory environment, it's really important to work on that relational piece as well. In like strengthening the attachment relationship, trying to be more attuned, not being the perfect parent, but just the good enough parent where you're responsive, you have limits, you are a gentle leader. Like our neurodivergent kids are, they tend to be very sensitive to not just the physical environment, but the relational environment. And so we don't want to walk on eggshells, but we do want to understand that we're in a relationship with our kids and anything we can do to deepen and strengthen and repair that relationship is worth it, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. I love the idea of repair and it's so important. Like, yeah, we're all going to make mistakes as parents and things, things happen all the time within families that are not ideal. And I've noticed that my little one, she just loves repair. I almost feel like she, like she's waiting for something to go wrong so that we can repair sometimes. That's cute. Yeah. (laughs) She often now initiates the repair. And, you know, I just feel like when I was growing up, that wasn't a concept that either of my parents were thinking of and mm-hmm. that that it, you know there's like the little break and then this restitching during the repair phase can can make that fabric stronger than it even was before the break absolutely and you're teaching your child conflict resolution mm-hmm. You're teaching them that just because there was a rupture doesn't mean the relationship has to end. This is really important for their older life and their friendships and their future careers. It gives our children a sense of relational resilience because we've modeled it for them and we've practiced it with them over and over again. And so they will then take this into their friendships They will take this into their romantic partnerships and they will take it into their employment relationships. And all of these things make for a meaningful, fulfilled life. Yeah. And so it's a gift. It's quite a gift you're giving when you do that. Absolutely. I think probably most of us know at least one adult who, who thinks that the minute there's a problem in a relationship, it's done. Yes. And lives their life accordingly and has like a trail of broken relationships behind them. Yes, yes, yes. Broken relationships, jobs that weren't horrible. They could have been repaired, but they left the job. So there's a lot of like hopping around of relationships and, and, you know, career. It's hard to find a a career that they want to stay in because it's like the first sign of something's not perfect. And then it's like they run. So, yeah. Yeah. My daughter, I, I, so I want to talk about school and unschooling and homeschooling as well. But a year ago, last fall, we had her in a really sweet little homeschool enrichment program (sighs) and she was chewing her fingernails like crazy all day. And then when she came home and 
noticing that behavior not lessening over the two months she was there was one of the reasons we took her out. We just, it, it was like, this is too much for her nervous system. You know, what mm-hmm. we've tried everything and all the talking and the talking to the teachers and we were away for a year and she just went back a couple months ago and that's not happening at all anymore. She was, she's ready now, you know, a year went by, we did a lot more work on regulation after finding your work and, so I'm I'm just noticing, you know, oh, here we are back in the same space in the same environment and she's different and her resiliency is different. I'm just mentioning that, you know, that these tools That's beautiful. Yeah, when when put to work can really show results. But I'm so grateful for how you speak about schooling and unschooling and like when you became a mother, did you know you were going to take a different schooling route? I did. First of all, I want to just rewind really quick and, and say that it's so beautiful what you what you guys did with your daughter, how you know you respected that she wasn't ready at that time and you observed her behaviors as te- as te- telling you something about her and you honored that and then you revisited it and now she's ready. Mm-hmm. And so it's a beautiful example of of meeting our kids where they are, honoring what they need in that developmental stage. And then trying again and and seeing what happens. So I just want to applaud you on that. They can be, thank you. They can be so different than their peers, you know, and like all her friends are doing great. And the parents are like, why would you leave this amazing program and your community and your people? And we're like, well, because we're, we're listening to her body. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. So when, when my daughter was born, did I know I would do a different school? I would say 99% I knew when she was like five days old. (laughs) She came out spirited and intense and amazing. And literally at five days old at our pediatrician's visit, her gross motor skill level was like so advanced. The pediatrician was like, oh, she's going to be an early walker just by the way she was moving her legs and stuff. So basically I'm sharing that just to say that she's always been like a mover and a shaker and she's incredibly active And once I saw how active she was, and of course, how just bright and lovely her spirit was, I knew that I I wouldn't send her to typical school. I knew it. And and thankfully, her dad knew it too. Mm -hmm. The thought of putting her into a traditional you know, public school classroom where they're sitting for like six hours a day with very short breaks and they're being like adult micromanaged all day. I speak kind of blunt. So this isn't an attack on teachers. I understand that teachers are working within a very limited amount of like teacher freedom. Teachers are very much like their hands are tied in many ways. So sometimes when I talk about school and homeschool and public school, teachers can feel really attacked. And I just want to name that like, this is not about teachers. This is about the structure of, of traditional school. And I couldn't bear the thought of having her micromanaged all day long by adults being asked to sit all day long, not being able to learn in a way that we know is developmentally appropriate for children, which is play and socializing and movement. So that's when I knew that that would not be our path. Yeah. What do her days look like or how does that work? 
we did start off as a, at a play-based preschool when she was like two and a half. Cause I had to, I had to go to work part-time to get my clinical hours to be a therapist. And that was beautiful. It was an outdoor program, half day child-led, no academics. They were caring for chickens and bunnies and just literally playing all day long, jumping in the mud, you know, being kids. So that w- that's one program that we started with. And it was such a beautiful introduction to early education that I knew I wanted to keep that going. They set the bar so high. I was like, can't you guys just open an elementary school? Like, we'll stay here forever. But they're like, no, sorry. So once preschool was over and and she was five and we were thinking about kindergarten, we decided to go the homeschool unschool route. And essentially what that looks like for us is we are part of several, I mean, it's evolved throughout the years. We've been, we're on year three right now, but, but we're, we are involved in several like educational opportunities, if you will, that are child-led, use like an unschooling philosophy, self-directed education. And we do that like out in nature and with other people. So school for us does not look like sitting at the dining table busting out these worksheets and following like a strict curriculum. I know it can for some, but it doesn't look like that for us. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I've had Akila Richards on the podcast, I think episode 75, talking about unschooling. And I love the the phrase school wounds that she brought Mm. to my attention. And, you know, I I think about what what happens, I think, to all children pretty much in compulsory schooling, um, but especially to these neurodivergent kids, like how harmful that is for them, as you were saying, to be made to sit still all day and just conform. You know, I mean, when I go back to my elementary school experiences, it's like small trauma after small trauma and the way my teachers and my peers were treating me and my sensitive little soul was like, what, where am I? Same. I, I have those school wounds. I'm very aware I have those school wounds and I wanted to give my daughter more. I mean, that's the basic parenting principle is like you try to give your kids better than what you had. You know, oftentimes if we were raised with parents who worked all the time and who were never around, like we might try to be around more. If we went to like an awful, you know, toxic school environment, we're going to pay a little closer attention to the school that we enroll our child in. So those wounds, I think that, it's important to pay attention to them and then break the cycle, you know? And it's so true. It's like, I think that it applies to all children, but some children are more adaptable than others. They just have a stronger, I'm trying not to use the word wiring again, but constitution. Mm-hmm. You know, there's these theories of like the orchid child and the dandelion child. I don't know if you're familiar, but the dandelion child is literally like a dandelion. They can thrive like in any environment. It does not have to be tailored to them. Mm-hmm. They just sprout. They're there. They're good, right? The conditions don't matter a whole lot. They're going to grow and develop. And they're going to bounce back in, in difficult environmental times. The orchid child is like an orchid. The environment needs to kind of be just right for them. and. You know, it's not coddling, it's thrive, it's helping them live. 
I don't know about you, but I cannot keep an orchid alive for longer than a couple of days. <laughs> Insight to be able to adjust the environment to be right for them. I believe that we should because this supports their mental health and this supports them building up that strength of resilience. Because if we kill that orchid before it can even go out into the world, what have we done? You know, there's no chance. Another beautiful thing about the orchid child is that when we create the environment that is right for them, I mean, they just bloom and they are so beautiful and magical and they really do have a special gift. You know, many of these highly sensitive and and spirited and neurodivergent kids, they have particular strengths that are not seen as much, I would argue, in the typically developing world. You know, many of them are gifted. And I don't necessarily mean academic gifted. I mean, artistic and visual spatial understanding. So I knew that I was not going to put my orchid into that crazy storm. Yeah. Yeah. I like the way um, Dr. Elaine Aaron puts it in her book on that highly sensitive person. Mm -hmm. She talks about, you know, like ancestral peoples, like tribal peoples around the campfire and how you know, in her, and her reckoning of it, about 20% of people are highly sensitive. And so we can, you know, put that wherever we want to on the neurodivergent spectrum Mm. and that it's often inherited or, you know, part of your ancestral field. And that, um, so that, you know, then the 80% are like the doers and they're, they're out and they're hunting and maybe they're gathering and they're like putting up the structures, but then there's the 20% who are like going to be attuned to, oh, the air just changed. A storm is coming. Mm, I heard something in the woods. Is there an enemy tribe nearby? And, you know, I just, I love thinking about, and, and, you know, that they would be like the shamans and the people mediating in in the different realms and knowing what the body needs when someone is wounded or sick. Um, So I just, I love that sort of ancestral framing of these different ways that the brains work and how people would then fit into their societies and the gifts that they could bring. Absolutely. Absolutely. We all have a role to play and the highly sensitive or neurodivergent child, they might be like more observant as well. And that's a huge gift. You know, I don't mean to frame, I don't mean to romanticize the very real struggles that come with like say schooling. And it's like ADHD people have a different way of thinking and, and processing information and learning. And that really is a gift because they, they're very novel. And so while everyone else is trying to figure out this problem and just can't think outside of the box, the ADHD person is going to be able to think outside of the box. And we need that. We need innovation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, I want to talk about what we kind of touched on earlier is all these, this big gray area, and then the way that culture is currently framing something that's going to change tomorrow, and what isn't is not acceptable to talk about or have a certain opinion on, and how that interplays with biological reality. So you are already grounded in this through your work with neurodivergent children. And I actually, I want to, um, I want to sneak in a quick story here, which is that talking about like the ableism. So this is where like the current cultural, whatever zeitgeist is like messing with things. 
Um, I saw a woman post a reel on Instagram a few days ago about something that had helped her autistic son start speaking when he had been nonverbal for years. And she ended up taking the reel down because she got so attacked by people claiming that she's being ableist. And she's like, no, trust me, I'm his mother. He is happier. Our lives are better. You know, he can communicate yeah. now. Like, um, so that's terrifying to me to see to see so many folks online try to create a culture where we can't speak honestly and try to address things that might be problematic. Uh, so I really appreciated watching you over the last year speak more about what you're seeing as harm to children being done by the modern reigning gender ideology. And that you feel, I've seen you say that you have you know, almost a moral duty to speak out because you are a licensed therapist. You, you have credentials. <laughs> yes. Yes. So what do you see as being harmful, especially for neurodivergent kids about the extremely rigid way we're told we're allowed to talk about gender, gender dysmorphia, body dysmorphia, et cetera? Mm -hmm. I think that neurodivergent particularly autistic and ADHD kids are really at risk with some of the gender ideologies that are popular right now because they frame the understanding of being a man or a woman or a boy or a girl outside of biological truth, material reality. And I just think it's dangerous for children to not have a grasp of the material world and to be taught these ideas that promote disassociation from the body. Mm -hmm. And in my field, we have long understood disassociation of mind and body as a negative, undesirable symptom, usually of trauma, that we try to remedy. So why would we intentionally teach an understanding that is not scientific about identity to young, impressionable children that could promote disassociation from the mind and body? And the reason why um, autistic kids are particularly at risk is because there tends to be more rigid thinking. There tends to be more black and white thinking. And so it's like once you've been told, once they've been told this idea of, you know, a woman, a woman is these stereotypes, then when they don't fit or a girl, when they don't fit that stereotype, they may start to believe that they're not a woman or a girl when they are in fact female. And the implications of that can be significant. And then with our ADHD kids and our autistic kids, but particularly ADHD, there's a, a real struggle with executive functioning and impulse control. These kids tend to be very impulsive. And then when you add the, the the tendency to hyperfixate from autism and the tendency to spend a lot of time online, the pathway towards thinking that they are a different gender, becoming confused, not knowing, you know, that their sex body really does mean something. 
it just can lead them on a pathway of medicalization and disassociation from who they are. Mm-hmm. A lot of confusion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, disassociation is such a powerful way to frame it. And, you know, I've seen people say, and I think you posted something similar too, like, if a child, a teenager comes to an adult, to a therapist, body dysmorphic, um, anorexic or bulimic, we don't say, yeah, I mean, you are kind of fat. Like you should probably keep throwing up or starving yourself. Like let's affirm this body dysmorphia for you. But for some reason with gender, we go immediately into the affirmation path. Yeah. Instead of just treating the dysmorphia or the questions or the, the mental health issues. I mean, you know, I've been paying very close attention to detransitioners stories. And they're always like, why didn't they look at the bigger mental health problems I was having? Why did they just immediately write me the prescription or sign me up for the surgery? I know when therapists do that, it requires us to really abandon everything that we've been taught about kids and mental health and the social environment and the family environment and trauma and neurodevelopmental disorders, it requires us to really check our brain at the door. Yes. That's how I view it. And I just see it as probably one of the biggest medical scandals of maybe human history, (laughs) you know? Yeah. I, I think it's a medical scandal. Yes. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't see any other outcome than future generations go, oh my God, what yeah. were they thinking? Yeah. Yeah. And what I think to be so dark, so depraved is that they want to introduce this to the kids at age five. Mm-hmm. I mean, in Portland and California, like this is the norm in many districts. And it's like, so that, so people will make an argument and they'll say, we're just trying to make the gender dysphoric or the trans kids feel welcome and safe. And I'm not buying that. I'm not buying it because we know how to teach kids to be kind to one another. We know how to be the adult and not tolerate bullying of other kids. We know how to help kids feel welcome and emotionally safe without lying to them about biology and and reality. And I posted about this the other day, like in the same way that we would make the diabetic child feel welcome, can we do that to the gender dysphoric child? And what I mean is, The diabetic child who is, let's say they're type one, they're insulin dependent, they have to give themselves insulin injections and they have to test their blood sugar to stay safe. When we make that diabetic child feel welcome in the classroom and and watch them check their blood sugar and give themselves the, the insulin injection, we don't ask the other 29 kids to check their blood sugar. We're not passing out insulin needles to the other kids. So if there is truly a gender dysphoric or trans identified child in the classroom, can we put our thinking caps on and figure out how to make that child feel welcome and safe without teaching all the other kids about this child's clinical issue in a way that implicates the whole, all the other kids? Yes. 
And you've pointed out that, you know, there's many trans people who don't, who don't want that, don't want to be asked their pronouns when they're in a new group. Like they they just want to actually be seen as a man or a woman, boy or a girl, and not like have the whole game played and so much attention brought to it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, don't know I was going to kind of switch back like to this being taught at such a young age. So, you know, I think like a lot of people, traditionally liberal people, you know, 10, 20 years ago, I was like, yes, affirm these kids. We love them. We need to make them feel included and loved. And it's been a, a slow, you know, bit by like layer by layer, the onion has come unpeeled for me over the last couple of years with gender stuff. And it's endless. I mean, every day I I see something, I'm like, oh my gosh, I hadn't thought of that aspect of it. But one that was extremely powerful for me is, is this piece around not teaching my child to deny truth, to deny biological reality, and to deny her own intuition. Like kids know from babyhood who is male and who is female. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and especially if you have a daughter and it, I mean, it's... <laughs> Okay, so if if a man dressed as a woman comes into our space when she's little and she's like, mommy, that's a man. I'm like, no, honey, that's a woman. I am teaching her to shut down a very important intuition in her body that tells her what sex a person is, which at some point in her life, tragically, is probably going to be a very important preservative safety issue for her to know, can I trust this person or not? So if we're telling little girls, and of course, boys too, like, oh, this person is female. When they know that person's male, we're teaching them not to trust their own alarm bells, possibly in a future situation. Yeah. Yeah. It's a weird form of gaslighting. Mm -hmm. And it's it's like a mind control. And it's so dishonest. And not only... So everything that you just said, I agree with. And also... You're also rupturing your daughter's trust. I I would argue that a parent who does that is rupturing their child's trust as well because the parent is just straight lying to their face. Yes. And it is so confusing for a child because they look to us for guidance, their intuition, their interoceptive perception of reality, their, their ability to sense who's male, who's female, which we've had like evolutionarily ingrained in us. Cause we need to know who the opposite sex is for mating purposes and safety purposes. So we're asking the kids to shut this off and, and we are someone who they love and trust and, and look to for guidance. And we're giving them this really distorted message. Yeah. So we're shutting down their bodily knowing. We're shutting down their trust in us as parents. And we're laying a framework for them to accept any blatant lie in the future as well. Yeah. Yeah. And we're telling them that speaking truth is not allowed. Mm -hmm. We're telling them that as well. Speaking truth is not allowed. That if speaking truth, just naming an objective fact, that person is a man, that person is a woman we're raising them to be like people pleasers, like, like always walking on eggshells for other people's feelings, always self-censoring, like really shoving down their understanding of reality so much so that they lose touch with reality. 
This is what happens in domestic violence relationships. When you have been gaslighted so many times by your partner, the outcome, the result is that you no longer have a grasp of truth, of reality. You don't know if you can trust yourself anymore, if you can trust your perception of the world. And that is tragic. And we should not be teaching that to children. No, it's terrifying on an individual level for these kids' well-being and a collective level. Like this, this opens the door for, you know, the bad people, whoever they may be. Yeah. Oh my gosh. To, to run them. It's, it's like endless, you know, what, what can happen when you have a population this confused, this willing to buy lies. Like that's where I decided I'm not going to be quiet on the gender stuff anymore is I, I will do whatever I can to prevent my daughters from growing up in a world where lies are readily accepted as truth. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Same. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to lie to myself. I'm not going to lie to my child. I have a professional and ethical responsibility to speak up for vulnerable populations, which are children. Also, it sets a it sets a cultural precedent that is so Orwellian. Yeah, exactly. I'm not going there. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to obey. I'm not going to play the totalitarian games. I just refuse. And with that, you know, you're called names. Your message might be misunderstood, but I stand in integrity. So, yeah. yeah. I was telling you that I, this is the first time I've talked about, touched on gender on this podcast, but I have on Instagram and I was scared for sure, you know, Um, but 99% of the response I got was like, thank you so much. I agree. And for a lot of us, people have the same story as me of having their minds changed over the last couple of years and like, you know, small realization after small realization, but there's still a very strong, very loud contingent out there, you know, calling, calling people like us turfs and bigots and transphobes. And I love you, you posted, if a clinician has concerns about the use of electroconvulsive therapy on depressed kids, is the clinician anti-depressed child? Are they depressed child phobic? Um, it just, you know, it shows like how it's a whole different set of logic when it comes to this one issue. It's true. And clinicians, many of them are willingly going along with this lie. And yeah, it's, I'm really glad you brought up that post because in the clinical world, it is normal to disagree. It is normal to say, uh, I would take a different clinical approach for that. It is normal for clinicians and researchers to go at it in their journal articles, refuting each other, saying, you know, that approach is not effective. You know, this approach is better. Um, These are the reasons. That is what science is. That is what research is, is you you're allowed to speak about your reservations and you're allowed to talk about the actual evidence and lack thereof. And that has been the scientific way since like what the enlightenment period or something. When when you take a clinical diagnosis, say of gender dysphoria, and you turn it into an identity of 
trans people or trans kids. And then you make that identity, you frame it as the most marginalized identity that there can be. And then you take a group of professionals who are usually very kind-hearted, compassionate people who want to help marginalized groups. I'm talking about therapists. Then it makes it to where you're not allowed to discuss the different forms of clinical treatment for this condition called gender dysphoria. We even have clinicians denying that it's a clinical issue at all. They say it's not a clinical issue. And in the next breath, say that the children and adults should have access to medicine and surgery. When someone gets medicine and surgery, that by nature, by default, makes it a clinical issue unless they're getting plastic surgery, elective plastic cosmetic surgery, which I argue is not a human right. And children should not be getting plastic surgery unless, you know, maybe they're a burn burn victim, God forbid, you know, something that's, that they really need to reconstruct, but healthy body parts and the clinicians, I don't want to frame us all this way because we are not all this way. And there are many who disagree, but they're in hiding because they're scared, Mm -hmm. but we're being asked to check our brains at the door. And I don't know how they do it. I don't know how they stand in integrity. And I don't know how they look in the mirror or how they sleep at night. Yeah. Um, I want to go back quickly before we end. I mean, we could go there forever. <laughs> you I know, know. for hours. <laughs> surgery and the hormones and what, what it does to their bodies and brains and all the stories of the detransitioners and how the neocortex isn't developed until 25. Like how on earth can we be letting this happen in the school settings the pronoun games and then also the whose whose ancestors were more oppressive and whose ancestors were more oppressed i've seen you write about this too like it you you're you have a post that i mean absolutely no disrespect but introducing oneself as a white settler is unnecessary and scary like what do you see what do you see happening in little kids' brains there when that's being normalized in schools? Oh, I'm going to be generous here. I see it as a misguided attempt to promote compassion and empathy and um, you know, democratic values of of equality and fairness, if I'm being generous. <laughs> and I would say that it's so misguided. I think that it teaches children to put themselves into boxes. I think that it teaches children that there's always a good guy and a bad guy based on skin color and other factors. I think that it teaches self-hatred. And I'm not talking about just for kids of color or white kids. I think it teaches self-hatred for both, Mm. for all kids. The kids who are framed as perpetually oppressed I think it teaches self-hatred to them. I think it teaches learned helplessness as well. I just think that it's so wrong. Like I I have family in the public school system, little nephews of color, and I just cannot even imagine them being taught that they are perpetually oppressed. They're not oppressed at all, actually. 
because we're not poor, you know, people who are truly oppressed are, are in poverty of all colors, all races, but to teach kids to put themselves in boxes based on race and to, to have this, this weird sense of like guilt and responsibility for something that maybe your ancestors did or did not do. I just think it's a really perverse way to educate kids and teach them to be compassionate and fair and kind. Yeah. We could just teach them to be compassionate and fair and kind. I know. I know. That's what we could do. And we could teach accurate history in a developmentally appropriate way. Yes. We could instill hope for the future of things, you know, improving for groups who need their lives improved Mm -hmm. um, for vulnerable groups and the groups who are truly vulnerable, we can empower them with skills to make their lives better going forward. Yes. Yeah. It's not rocket science. No, it's not. And it's just (laughs) bizarre having these, again, very rigid beliefs, like shoved down our throats and being told that this is the only way to be a moral person. This is the, if you don't believe in these exact sets of precepts, then you are hateful, immoral, bigoted. You don't care. It's, it's so, it all comes down to like, who cares the most? Yeah. Yeah. And those black and white views of people that you just listed, it's very, and I don't mean to insult toddlers by any means, but it's very, it's like being stuck in a toddler stage of development. Yeah, it is. You know? Yeah. And, and, and I expect more from adults. Right. I expect more from teachers and therapists. Yeah. Like a, you know, a hallmark of mental intellectual maturity is being able to hold nuance and to say there's, there's, there's some black, there's some white, but there's just a shit ton of gray for the most part. And we're all making our way through it. Totally. A big part of like responsible parenting and responsible teaching is teaching children and youth how to hold multiple truths. Yes. And I see these exercises that happen in in classrooms about privilege as really dishonoring that principle of holding multiple truths. And I see it as regressive. Mm -hmm. And teaching kids to be like really fragile and disempowered. And last thing I'll say about this, sorry, I get I get hype on this, this topic. It also takes resources from areas that could be used to actually help children who truly need the help. Mm-hmm. So for example, we know that the black illiteracy rate is so high in the US. So rather than teaching black children that they are perpetually oppressed and that white people are privileged and essentially uh have power over them like forever, why not use the resources that you spent to purchase that curriculum or to pay that teacher or to pay that consultant who brought in this program, why not use those resources to teach the kids to read? 
If we're talking about older youth, why not use those resources to get the kids involved in some kind of vocational program? So if they're not college bound, they are bound on the path of becoming like um, a contractor or something. These are high paying jobs. And what are we doing? We're teaching them that they are perpetually oppressed. Los Angeles Unified School District has this program called Queer All Year. Literally every month of the year, millions of dollars on consultants and and curriculum to teach kids about being queer in a district that has like 85% illiteracy rate for black and brown kids. It is criminal. It's criminal. Wow. Yeah. And just just the sexualization. Like, why are we talking about these highly sexual things to children? That's insane. I know. I know. And also, like, what about letting these youth figure out a few things for themselves? Mm-hmm. Like, I'll speak for myself and I'll stay appropriate, but I didn't need a teacher to teach me about some of the things that I would go on to learn as an adult. Mm -hmm. And like part of the joy is like discovering some of those things with your partner. Right. 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 Like I, I support the teaching of basic safe sex and, 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 and science-based biological based reproduction and things like that. Mm -hmm. I support that. I also support kids learning about, you know, building up their character. So maybe they don't feel the need to be sexually active so young. But aside from that basic learning, all this stuff about like kinky sex and queer sex, not only is it insulting to queer people to say that like queer people can't just have regular boring sex their sex has to be so wild and kinky it's like what do you realize how stereotypical like bigoted that is Mm -hmm. another regressive stereotype Mm -hmm. so regressive and it's like how about we let the youth learn a few things with their consensual respectful partner when they're a young adult yeah yeah. And it, I mean, it's, it's all tied into kind of like the, the oppressed Olympics, like who's, who is the most oppressed, you know, that now teenagers, especially it is super uncool to be straight or quote cis. And so they're, they're claiming identities that, you know, in time for many, if not most of them, they'll be like, that, that wasn't really me. You know, I saw this, this thing that was happening in schools is like, stick, like take the sticker that defines your sexuality. It's like, these are freaking elementary school kids, first of all, but you know, and it's like, there's like 20 different kinds of sexualities and gender identities and all the stickers are cool and rainbow in shapes. And then the straight and the cis were literally blank. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) I've seen the flag. I think there's like a cis flag (laughs) and it's like, gray like muted colors like it's so boring yeah like everyone knows that the child is not going to choose that right exactly yeah and I think to myself like why are you so obsessed with who the kids are attracted to yeah why are you so obsessed with who the kids want to sleep with like can you just like can you just stop? (laughs) You know, like the hyper-focus on sexuality and sexual orientation, it's, 
it's just perverse to me. And I'm not a prude person, you know? Yeah. At any point in history, this would have been considered so wrong, so deviant, so morally not okay. But since it's been like ushered in under the gender acceptance umbrella, we're going forward with it. And it's it's not okay. And it's also, I mean, this gets into identity politics in general, which is a huge, huge conversation, but you're not who you're sexually attracted to. <laughs> you're not right. how gender identity. Like who you are is so much deeper and more beautiful and complex than that. Yeah. It's teaching a really shallow understanding of identity. Yeah. Really, really shallow. And I just, we know that our kids are in a mental health crisis in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And I get really curious about how this has potentially contributed to that crisis. Yes. I see kids as having an emptiness and they're grasping. They're grasping onto these identities because they're, they're, they're empty inside. Yeah. You don't get a mental health crisis when, when kids are doing well, when they're when they're fulfilled. Yeah. Yeah. And it's many overlapping things, you know, including yeah. the pandemic, but this, uh, you're right. This is a major piece of it. Yeah. Um, okay. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, you know, courage begets courage and seeing you be courageous about this topic has inspired me to be, and, you know, you, you do it on Instagram, which is, you also have your Substack, which we'll talk about, but there's not a whole lot of room for the nuanced conversations on Instagram. And um, I'm so appreciative of the podcast format for allowing conversations to explore all the gray area. So thank you for talking to me. And um, yeah, your your Substack, Wrong Think, is incredible. You're you're writing like a few times a week. You're really on fire. I am now because I'm on a break from Instagram. So I have to channel that energy somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. I mean, I'm, I'm so glad to talk with you and I'm so appreciative of you having me on and, and creating the space for us to have these conversations. Cause I think that, well, I like to hope that when people actually hear us talk rather than just seeing words on a bright pink graphic, that they can hear that we're coming from a really solid place with our concerns and not coming from a place of hatred at all. But yeah, my Substack. I'm writing more. It's a little weird because it's like every time I write, it gets emailed to people. And I'm like, can we, can I like not email everybody every time I write? Because it's, <laughs> I'm not really wanting to do that. So I'm figuring out my flow, but it's a good, it's a good um, avenue to get to like flesh some of these thoughts out. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, people, we signed up because we want you to email us. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but you know, it's intimate. I always say like my, my newsletter list, I'm very grateful that you let me in to your inbox. That That's a different dynamic than Instagram or something else. And, you know, I take that relationship seriously. It's mm-hmm. a good point. Yeah. So neurocurious therapist on Instagram, do you have a website or how can people find the Substack? Yeah. So neurocurious therapist on Instagram, my website is tavajohnstone.com. My substack is teva.substack.com. 
And please follow my work. Check out my website. I'm I'm creating a, a homeschool, unschool like workshop for busy moms who have other responsibilities and you know don't want to be home with their child all day, but but they do want to exit the schools. So I'm creating a workshop for that. Yeah, lots of exciting things are in the works. So come along, say hi. (laughs) All right. Thank you, Teva. Thank you, Amber. Thank you for taking these medicine stories in. I hope they inspire you to keep walking the mythic path of your own unfolding self. I love sharing information and will always put any relevant links in the show notes. You can find past episodes, my blog, and our handmade herbal medicines at mythicmedicine.love. We've got reishi, lion's mane, elderberry, mugwort, yarrow, redwood, body oils, an amazing sleep medicine, heart medicine, earth essences, so much more, more than I can list there, mythicmedicine.love. While you're there, check out my quiz, which healing herb is your spirit medicine? It's fun and lighthearted, but the results are really in-depth and designed to bring you into closer alignment with both the medicine that you're in need of and the medicine that you already carry and can bring to others. If you love the show, please consider supporting it at patreon.com slash medicine stories. It is so worth your while. There are dozens and dozens of killer rewards there. And I've been told by many folks that it's the best Patreon out there. We've got ebooks, downloadable PDFs, bonus interviews, guided meditations, giveaways, resource guides, links to online learning and behind the scenes stuff, and just so much more. The best of it is available at the $2 a month level. Thank you. And please subscribe on whichever app you use. Just click that little subscribe button and review on iTunes. It's so helpful. And if you do that, you just may be featured in a listener spotlight in the future. The music that opens the show is by Marie Sue. That's M-A-R-I-E-E. S-I-O-U-X from her beautiful song, Wild Eyes. Thank you, Marie. And thanks to you all. I look forward to next time. Mm -hmm.